Uh, We turn again for a while to the passage of Scripture we read in Genesis chapter 6. And we'll read again in verse 22. This was in response to the command that the Lord had given to him to make the ark, having given him its dimensions and then ordered him to bring all the different creatures into it. And we read that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Back in the 18th century, uh, a group of people known as deists put forward the notion that, yes, God is the creator of all things, that he created the universe and everything that is in it, but he then withdrew and played no further part in the life of the universe. It's as if he had wound up a clock and then he had withdrawn to leave the clock to run down of its own device, showing no further care or concern for it. And such a a philosophy, such an idea, was not a ditching of God altogether. Atheism doesn't come straight away. It doesn't come overnight. But such a belief was a a staging post on the way to ditching God altogether. It creeps up slowly and eventually over the years and generations, uh, unbelief in a God or a nominal belief in a God takes hold in a nation. And sadly, in our own day and age, that process has accelerated. But the Bible reveals that not only has God created all things, but that God maintains Uh, He he sustains all things by his mighty power. He is at work sustaining the world. He is at work uh, working out his eternal purposes as he builds a church, as he gathers to himself a people from all the nations of the world, gathering them from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. God uh, has a plan and he involves himself in creation. He has a plan and a purpose, and he will bring that plan and purpose to its ultimate fulfillment. It doesn't matter what mankind collectively may do. It doesn't matter what the devil may do. God's plan will come to fulfillment. And the account of the flood, as we, well, we haven't read the account of the flood yet, but it follows in the in the the chapters after that, but the account of the flood shows God's care and concern for that which he has created. He is concerned when we turn away from him. He is angered by injustice, by exploitation. He's angered by violence. God made us ultimately for a relationship with himself, a relationship of trust, a relationship of love, that we have the inestimable privilege of being able to address him as Father, our Father, which art in heaven. Of all the religions of the world, it is only the Christian that has the right to address God as Father. He made us with a definite purpose. We're not the products of some arbitrary and mindless process. The watchmaker, if I can use that term, borrowing it from somebody else, the watchmaker who made the universe, put it all together according to his intricate and eternal plan. He created man and woman in his own image and in his own likeness so that they would worship him and reflect his moral 
and ethical standards and that we would be his stewards to care for the estate that he has made. My grandson, Johnny, he's showing a great interest in in, uh, biblical matters and he was asking me not long ago, what does it mean, he says, that we are made in the image and likeness of God? Because previously he had asked me about God, what is God like? And I explained to him that God doesn't have uh, a body, that God is pure uh, spirit. So if that's the case, then what does it mean when God has made us in his image and in his likeness? And hopefully I was able to give a, a reasonable explanation, and he seemed quite satisfied with that. And it's wonderful when young people of that age are asking these sort of questions, questions that had no interest to me when I was at that comparable age all those uh, years uh, ago. God made man and woman in his own likeness and in his own image, that we might worship him. He didn't make us that we would go off and do our own thing and ignore God completely and come to him only on special uh, occasions. But then mankind rebelled, as we read not just here at the beginning of time in the account of the flood, but we see that over and over again through the the history of humanity. Mankind rebelled. Mankind refused to acknowledge God, let alone worship him. And then eventually when the steward himself wanted to be Lord of everything, then God was bound to do something about it. And the first point I want to highlight here is is, uh, mankind's wickedness. I didn't give uh, Malcolm the, the points, otherwise he would have put them up on the screen. But the first point here is mankind's wickedness, humanity's uh, wickedness. And we see that in verses 5, 11, and 12. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And in verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And again in verse 12, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Man's wickedness, as we read in another translation, had become very great. His every inclination was only evil, not part of the time, but we read in the NIV all of the time. And we go back to the very beginning of creation when God surveyed his handiwork, when he looked at all that he had created and he he made that great statement that it it wasn't just good, but that it was uh, very good. God took satisfaction. uh, And five times uh, at the beginning of Genesis, we're told that God looked at his creation and saw that it was good. And then in chapter 131, God saw that all that he had made and it was very good. It was pure, it was pristine, it was flawless, quite different from the world in which we live today. But now when we come to this passage here in chapter 6 of Genesis, God looked with anger and with sadness. The beauty of his creation had been marred and defiled. The the earth was corrupt and full of violence for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. People no longer feared God as we think they had at the beginning. Belief and reverence for a divine being to whom one 
was accountable had dissipated entirely. Morality had become non-existence. Violence reigned. The restraints of law and order were breached and chaos ensured. And survival of the fittest would have become the order of the day. The weak were trampled upon. Compassion and mercy were alien concepts. People lived in the, a, according to Darwin's theory of evolution, the blind forces of survival pitting one person against another. No quarter asked and none given. The psalmist writes in Psalm 8, God made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. But man sadly threw away that crown and he's been going downhill ever since. But it wasn't that they didn't believe in God. It's not that there wasn't any evidence as God as Paul goes to great lengths to emphasize for us in chapter 1 of Romans. It was simply that they rebelled against him. We do not want this man Jesus in later years to to rule over us. People saw violence succeeding. They saw that God did not seem to intervene or even intercede, and therefore they emulated the things that they saw succeeding around them. That seemed to be the way to get on in the world. And God was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. We cannot truly comprehend what that truly means, that God who created all things, the God who sent his Son to redeem the lost, that God who loves his people, that his heart should be filled with pain. We know what it's like when our own hearts are filled with pain on occasion. But what was it like for God to say that his heart was filled with pain? And I wonder how does God feel today when he looks down upon us in the sophisticated West. We destroy healthy unborn babies. We covet other people's husbands and wives and we obey our physical impulses. But in the process of destroying the institution of marriage, the bedrock of society, and we condone all sorts of immorality uh, from one country to another. We have thrown away God and the Bible, and we don't want him to rule over us. We don't want him to tell us how to live. We want to set our own standards and determine how we ourselves want to live. We have dug up the foundations. We've thrown away the measuring line, and we've moved the boundaries. And the majority of people have denied their children the knowledge of God and of his love, and we've raised a lost generation, strangers to God and his grace. And I wonder, is God perhaps not a little grieved over our sophisticated, secular, humanist society in which we live today? And in his heart, in his heart, is God's heart perhaps not filled with pain at our rejection of him and his ways? And will he not do something about it? Has he not already started to do something about it. Remember when we go back into the Old Testament times that God promised that when his people rebelled against him, when they followed the worship of other gods, when they disobeyed him, then he would send all sorts of ways to punish them and and droughts withholding rain was one of them. And we're seeing that in certain parts of Europe today where crops are failing because 
of the lack of rain. Well, maybe that is God's judgment, and maybe it isn't, because we are not a covenant people, as was ancient Israel. But there is cause and effect. And so we read here, God having been pained in his heart at the violence that he saw on earth, he decided, he took that, the great decision that he would destroy the whole of the earth. Not just men, but animals also, because our rejection of God affects the whole world. Our greed and our rapaciousness affects the very world in which we inhabit and the creatures that we share this world with. And at the end of the day, we reject God at our peril. And there is a day of reckoning coming for each and every single one of us, because when life's journey comes to its inevitable end, we will meet with God, and we will have to give an account of what we did with, with the, the gift of life that God gave to us, and more especially, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did you do with my son, my son who is the great expression of my love and whom I gave freely to you? There is a day of wrath for all who will not bend the knee and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we will not bend the knee to him here in this life, then we most certainly will do so in the life to come. A judgment awaiting the ungodly that is far, far worse than the judgment of the flood ever was. So that's the first point. It's simply to, uh, to look at uh, the wickedness that had come over uh, people throughout the whole of the world. But then, and this is the good news, the good part, God has provided a place of safety. God provided a place of safety. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time. He walked with God. In other words, he had a, a close, uh, confiding, loving, trusting relationship with God. For him, God was not some distant being far, far away, but God was very, very close to him. He lived a life that pleased God. He obeyed God. He kept God's standards. He worshipped him, and God blessed him accordingly because God singled him out and his family that they alone would survive amongst all the people of the earth when he sent the great flood. And I wonder when you, if we were to go back and meet this man, Noah, what would he have been like? His whole lifestyle would have been a contrast to the lifestyles of the people around him. His blameless and God-honoring life would have singled him out and made him unpopular. His faith would have reminded people that there was a God, and by his faith, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, by his faith, he condemned the world. By his faith, he condemned the world. And at the end of the day, God is entirely just. He does not condemn the righteous. He does not destroy those who honor him. And so the God of all grace provided a, a refuge from, for him and his family from the the gathering storm. God would send a great flood that would destroy all life. But the very means that he used to destroy life would be the same means that would save the life of Noah as the floods rose and as the ark was lifted up 
and Noah and his family were safe within it. And we read here that God provided the way of salvation. He provided the ark. He provided the, uh, the detailed plans, the dimensions, the materials that would have been used. He shared his intentions with Noah. He told him what he was planning and what he was about to do. And Noah responded by faith. He didn't question the Lord, perhaps hundreds of miles away from the nearest sea, perhaps in a desert, perhaps the thought of a great flood would have been absolutely impossible even for Noah to comprehend. But he didn't argue. He didn't question God's wisdom. He simply did all that God commanded him to do. And his life was saved because of his obedience. And years later, uh, on the night of the Passover, when uh, God commanded Moses and the people of Israel to slaughter the Passover lambs, to, to take a branch of hyssop and dip it into the blood and smear it on the door frames of their houses, and the destroying angel, when he passed through the land of Egypt, he would see the blood and he would pass over that house because he knew that the people within that house had exercised faith. They had trusted that God would do exactly what he said he would do, that he would pass over uh, their homes. But he destroyed the eldest son of every Egyptian family because they had oppressed the Lord's people, the Lord's people who are precious to him and who are the apple of his eye. And in Hebrews, by faith, nor when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And again, by faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. These were saved by faith. They trusted in the Lord. They did not question God's ways or God's word, but they knew that what God promised, God would ultimately fulfill. And you know the uh, perhaps the greatest passage in the whole of the Bible in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't, isn't that a promise from God? That whoever's of this world who would trust in Jesus, they would not perish. They would not go to hell, but they would have everlasting life. That is God's promise, and God never, ever goes back on his word. Do we take God at face value? Do we believe that God will do exactly as he says, or do we sometimes question him? Well, Noah did not question God. Noah did all that God commanded him to do. And God, and God had given Noah a warning. We don't know how far away he he was from the sea, but we're told that he labored for over a hundred years. His life and that of his family depended on their efforts and upon his obedience. People would have traveled miles to, to see this amazing sight. They would, have, they would have sat there. They would have been there mocking. They would have been laughing. They might have come along and, and even offered to help him uh, for a bit of a joke. And for over a hundred years, this faithful man, this faithful patriarch warned other people to turn away from their wickedness, to turn to the Lord, to, to give up their violence, to return to the true worship of the true God. He would have warned them about the coming deluge, 
that time was running out. And maybe he even offered some of them a, a place in the ark. Turn away from your wickedness, and God will grant you a place with us. He promised them, but they all refused. They all carried on laughing. They all continued mocking him. And as Peter writes in his first letter, chapter 3, God waited patiently while the ark was being built. God was in no hurry. God waited patiently while the ark was being built. He gave them every opportunity to repent, but they did not take it. They mocked him. The idea of a, a great flood that would cover the whole of the world was simply preposterous. And anyway, even if it did come, they would simply take to the hills. They would just go up onto the, the higher ground. They would climb above the waters and they would save themselves. And Jesus warns us several times and in no uncertain way that the world will come to an end. Not when it is atrophied, not when it is run out of energy, but when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in order to bring life as we know it to its inevitable end. And he makes a comparison with the time of Noah, just as in the time of Noah, people were marrying and giving in marriage. So it will be when the Son of Man returns without any warning whatsoever. And the safest place for any one of us to be when that day comes is in the ark that God has provided for us, which is his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to shelter under the cross. At that time, Jesus says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And he says, no one knows about that hour or day. So the first thing was the, the wickedness uh, of humanity over the whole of the world. God would have gone into every part of the world looking for uh, evidence of righteousness, looking for evidence of godliness. But he didn't find it except in this man, uh, Nor, and his family. And then God provided the means of salvation for his family. God provided the opportunity for other people to put aside their violence and to, to come to the Lord Jesus. And the final point is simply this, that we are saved by faith. We are saved by faith and by faith alone. By faith, Noah built the ark and entered in at the appointed time in Chapter 7, we read there, the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. The Lord would have said, right, the time has come. You've finished your labors. Everything is ready. The animals have come in. All the food stuff has been stockpiled. Now go in to the ark. And the Lord shut him in. There would be no more warnings. They had mocked God's servant. They were deaf to his pleas. And I'm sure that as the waters of the earth began to rise and uh, there would have been hammering on the timbers on the outside of the ark, people desperate to get in, people repenting perhaps, but it was all too late because just as the Lord had shut Noah in, so he shut the others out and they perished. That's a terrible prospect, isn't it? That we might come to the end of life's journey. We've sat under the preaching of the gospel on many, many occasions and we've never taken it to heart and then we come all of a sudden without any warning whatsoever and we see Jesus face to face and we realize like the foolish virgins that we have not prepared for that moment. 
since I became the local minister in the East Church, I seem to be doing one funeral after another. It's a delight to do the funeral of somebody whom you knew was, was a godly man or woman, somebody who truly loved the Lord. But it's not so, uh, it's not so nice to do the funeral of somebody who showed no real interest in the Lord, somebody who did not want to discuss what Christ had done for them when you went to visit them in their home. We read in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. The gift, not something that we can earn. The gift of God, the free gift, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus came into the world. He came to die our death, to pay the price for our sins, to bring reconciliation between sinful humanity and a, a holy God. God overwhelmed his son, and we might say, with the flood of our sins. And so he died. But being without sin himself, he rose again on the third day, the Lord's day, such as this is. And we gather every Lord's day to remember that we worship not a dead man who lived and died long ago, but we have a glorious Savior who rose into the power of an endless life and whoever lives to intercede for us at the throne of grace. And now God calls us, as he called the people of old, to turn away from our sin, from our unbelief, to stop doing things our way and to start doing things God's way. In Isaiah 55, we read, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will, he will abundantly pardon. Enter through the narrow gate, says Jesus, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus is that gate. Jesus is the truth and the life and the way, and we will not come to the Father except through Jesus. And Jesus is the ark that God has provided for us, not just in our day, but in every single epoch following on from the time of Moses. He, Jesus, is alone the means of salvation. And just as Noah was saved by faith in the provision that God had made for him, so we too can be saved by faith through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we should die unrepentant before Christ returns, if we should pass from this life without knowing Jesus, what then? Well, like those in Noah's day, we will be hammering. We will be hammering in vain on heaven's door. We will be shouting out the good deeds that we did, and it will be too late and we will hear those dreadful words. The dreadful words spoken by Jesus, Depart from me, for I never knew you. My friends, why should any one of us ever have cause to hear those words, Depart from me, for I never knew you? Because you have a wonderful privilege. You're here in a, a gospel-preaching church where you've heard the gospel year in, and a year out. And my friends, as it says in the Bible today, now is the hour of salvation. Not tomorrow, 
The ark has been provided. The door is still open for us. Enter through while it remains open. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessing to these thoughts and meditations on his word. Eternal and ever-blessing God, we thank you for the means of grace. We thank you for Jesus, the ark that you have provided for us. And we pray that you would open some hearts here tonight that none of us, O Lord, would ever need to go to a lost eternity. That if we're still walking along that broad highway, Lord, arrest us and turn us round and guide us onto the narrow way following in the footsteps of Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless all that has been said this evening. And if anything has been said that's not in conformity with your word, uh, we pray uh, your forgiveness for that. We pray that the glory would be yours and the blessings ours. And we pray, Lord, your blessing upon all that is done at the Northern Conference tonight and in the days to come. Continue with us and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. And we sing now, very appropriately, um, Psalm 46.